every Sunday, especially for January, uh, we're going to repeat something together as a declaration, confession to say, yes, we believe these things, and we're taking the entire month to remind ourselves of the glorious truths that we hold dear, that are so important to us that we simply just can't, cannot let go of them. We've been looking at those truths through something called the five solas. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, there are uh, five truths that came out of something called the Reformation that we have used for centuries now to succinctly clarify essential truths that are so dear to us. If you didn't catch it, we mentioned it last week, that very last song that we sang together is exactly the things that we are exploring. So um, our screens are out, but hey, technology won't get us down. Uh, we're going to do it old school. You're just going to repeat after me. But side note, our projectors are on the way. I finally got word, so that's good. So who knows how long that'll take, but they're on their way. But we'll do it old school today. Just repeat after me, okay? According to Scripture alone... Humans are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. Amen. We'll be exploring that over the next couple of weeks. We looked at according to Scripture alone. And this morning, we're going to make the audacious claim that sinners are made alive, justified, by grace alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is where we will be this morning. As you turn there, let me pose a couple of questions to you as you are opening up your Bibles or dialing that up on your electronic communication device. However, you're turning to that scripture. I encourage you to go there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, by far, it is some of the most wonderful sections of scripture that we will explore together. But as you turn there, let me ask you a question. On what grounds does God save his people? On what grounds does God save his people? Is it their work, their own efforts, their pursuit of holiness? Is it their time in the word? Is it their squeaky clean record, their stature, their popularity in the community, their success? Is it their family? Is it their ability to articulate the gospel? Is it their faithfulness? Is it their personality? Is it their rock-solid ethics? Is it their clothes, their giving? What is it? What is required? What is it about God that he saves us? I suspect even as we read all of those if you have tasted the sweet grace of God in your salvation, you would say none of those things. But what is it about God that saves us? We could even ask the question, how does humanity continue to exist in deep rebellion towards a holy God? That's sort of miraculous, isn't it? How is it that God still deals kindly with you, and I'll throw myself in the midst, me. Well, it's precisely because of this glorious phrase, by grace alone. God, in his unmerited, undeserved 
favor, his grace that he pours out upon us that you and I just do not deserve. Do you know that the Reformation, this time of massive fundamental change, was fundamentally about grace? They were coming back to Scripture seeing a clarity on what it meant to be God's people. And underneath it all was a fundamental reality about grace. That grace is what granted man assurance of his salvation. Why? Because it was based upon God, not man. The rally cry, if you will, of the Reformation was that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, which we're going to discuss the element of faith next week. But this became the mantra, the the driving force behind it all. This was the principle, if you will, of deepest and freeing change. That grace alone was the grounds by which God saved. It starts there. It's initiated by God's grace. This is the well from which our salvation springs and became the most freeing reality that the church during the Reformation time clinged to. You want to think about grace, there's probably a lot of definitions that comes to mind. But here's a good working definition of grace by a scholar named Carl Truman. He wrote a book called, you guessed it, Grace Alone. It's a great book, and here's how he defines grace. Grace, we might say, is a response, an application of God's character and attributes. So, response, application of God's character and attributes to human rebellion. Action on God's part, motivated by love and shaped by holiness, which takes account of the seriousness of sin, yet brings sinners back into communion with him. I know that's a deep, long, wordy definition, but I want you to notice something in that definition. Notice that God's grace takes into account our sinfulness. As we're going to see this morning, it is in his response to our sin that grace is so clearly seen. But make no mistake about it, it is because of God that we are still breathing this moment. It is because of God that we are still breathing this very moment. His grace alone sustains us in all moments. It has been God's grace that has sustained humanity from the very, very beginning. Don't believe me? Think about God's choice to allow Adam and Eve to live in the midst of their rebellion. But rather, what does he do? Sacrifice animals. Well, this is a gracious act of God. His work of grace, yeah, it cost him something that he himself provided, and it spared them 
their lives. God is gracious indeed. And it is by that grace alone that we are kept secure, that we are loved, that we are corrected, that we are cared for, preserved. It all is because he extends grace towards us. I cannot say it enough. We sit here because of the grace of God. The Old Testament story, it screams of this reality. The people of God, you just spend any amount of time in Psalms, any amount of time. The people of God only saw themselves in light of what? God's grace to them. They were a people sustained, cared for by God and his gracious acts towards them, despite their groaning and rebellion. The Psalms are full of prayers for God's grace. They recount story after story after story after story of God being gracious and saving them from utter ruin. Grace became their identity. They were so closely linked to being a people because of God's grace. I was just reading the Psalms this week and uh, my son had come out from uh, in his sleeping stupor, and he'd come out, and I was reading Psalms, and we sat there on our recliner for a moment, and it was a moment in Psalms where it, this was happening. The psalmist was reaccounting God's grace. And you know what he referred to? You're the one who brought us out of Egypt. You're the one who made us a people. And for 20, 30 minutes, we just sat there, and we recounted God's grace to our family. And it reminded us that we owe all of ourselves to his grace alone. The people of God, historically throughout the whole biblical account, saw themselves only in light of God's grace. Because they knew if not for God's grace, they do not exist. When we went through the book of Genesis, we made that observation quite often. If not for the grace of God, every story of our Bibles is a story of God's grace. Is God's grace on display? Even Leviticus. Yes, even Leviticus. Now that's a, a numb-minding read, isn't it? <laughs> we spent a, a whole series of looking at Leviticus, and it was true. Even this book screams of God's grace. Why is that? Because Leviticus itself, as a book, is a detailed set of requirements for the people of God. What was its aim? To be with God. Because what did it do? It set up the sacrificial system. What did the sacrificial system, what did it provide? Means by which God's people could do what? Interact with God. It was not man's idea, but God in his grace. A book like Leviticus even screams, I, you, are dependent upon God's grace to know how to even interact with him and be in his presence. Now, God's grace, we could probably already thinking about many things, and we could 
look at and rejoice in God's grace. But you know the most clear depiction of God's grace is so clearly seen in Jesus. And honestly, in all facets of Jesus, his incarnation, his life, his death, burial, and also resurrection. And all of those things is stated so clearly in our text this morning. With that introduction to get your brain swimming around and hopefully rejoicing in God's grace, let us look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, so that you don't take my word for it. Now, I would suspect if you spend any amount of time in the church, you've seen this text, but it is uh, one that you should commit to memory. Let me just say that. These 10 verses are unbelievable and freeing to the uttermost. All right, so chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I'll read to verse 10. And you, or y'all, if you will, y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of words so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen to that section of Scripture. It breaks up rather nicely. Verses 1 to 3 tell us our situation. Did you hear the words that describe us? Dead. Well, that's wonderful. You see, there is no sense here in Ephesians that we are able nor alive to the things of God. Our situation is so bleak that the best modifier is dead, not alive, not able to move, powerless, helpless, without hope for change. Once dead, you are dead. Don't know how many dead bodies you've been around, but once they are dead, they are dead, unable to do anything for themselves. Well, why this descriptor? Why is this the plight of humanity? Why dead? Well, our sin has caused 
the problem. The effects of the fall, sin, are much more devastating than you can imagine. It has, and unfortunately, it continues to corrupt our thinking, causes us to follow the world, as the scripture says, and our sinful desires. We simply cannot say no. We are dead, and dead is dead. We are in bondage to our will. We are drawn to sinful tendencies, powerless to do anything about it, because we are dead. We simply cannot help ourselves, much like our family pets. Now, I've probably used this analogy before, but it's worth repeating. Our family pet, Moki. Now, Moki is a a pleasant dog. We love her. She is a poodle schnauzer mix, which is called a schnoodle, which is kind of fun to say. She is a schnoodle. She's kind. She listens fairly well. She loves to play, though she's getting older. She tires easily. She's never shown any sign of aggression. All around, she's pretty good. But we also have a cat. And when the cat throws up, yes, I said throws up, vomits, barf, whatever word you like to use, the dog, Moki, eats it. Yeah, gag reflex going for a few of you. It happens in our house too, like, oh! She simply cannot help herself. Literally, the noise the cat makes to vomit She's up, and she's running to wherever it is. Literally cannot help herself. And hopefully we can get to her in time and go, oh, stop. It's almost just within her. She's, she's drawn to the cat's vomit. For her, it's food. It's not the vile barf of another animal. Though she's a wonderful pet. She still follows what is inside her. She simply cannot help herself. To do one of the more gross things that happens in our household. But you know we cannot help ourselves. Outside of Christ, we are drawn to sin's lure. It is pleasing to us, isn't it? Rather than the destructive, vile rejection of a holy God, it's food. Sin has done great damage. We are dead. This is one of the most hopeless states and helpless states to be in. Dead. It has such a comprehensive impact. We can't miss the weight of these first three verses. It unpacks for us just how comprehensive the impact of sin is on our lives. Because in our sin, we become by nature children of wrath. Isn't that a crazy phrase? Children of wrath by nature? By simply just being born? (laughs) What does it mean By nature, what does this mean? 
This means that we are destined to experience God's wrath because of our sin. We are drawn to the vile vomit, if you will, of disobedience to God. And in that disobedience, we are destined to experience God's wrath. Now, we have probably experienced consequences for wrongs we've done in our life, some great, some small. All of that pales in comparison to the holy God of the entire world, bringing his rightful, holy judgment upon our sin. We could just as easily translate this text this way, that we are children destined for wrath. That's what this means, by nature, by sins, effects, and works in our life. This is a description of our destiny. Sounds bleak. (laughs) That's the descriptor of our destiny. Destined to experience God's wrath because of our sin, because we, we just cannot do anything else. The final outcome of our sin is wrath. And that is where we were headed. Sin has made us objects of God's wrath. Like, Pastor, you were started out with so full of joy. You see, joy comes when we don't escape this reality. Because it doesn't stop in the first three verses. But it does adequately explain for you and I sin's effects upon our life. We are no more than a dog running to the vile vomit of disobedience to the Lord. You see, no one escapes this reality. But, let me read verses 4 to 9 again. Out of all of this, first three verses, the text takes a drastic turn. But God. We could spend an entire year on but God, and all that he has done. But you know what's so wonderful about God's word is it goes on. But God, who by the way is rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, unable to do anything, unable to turn unto the Lord, what did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. And here's our phrase this morning, by grace you have been saved. And, salvation is great, and raised up, raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That we might show that. All of that in Christ Jesus, verse 8. For by grace, in case you missed it, let's repeat it again. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. 
And just so you're clear on what that means, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And if that's not clear, let me just verse 9. Not a result of works, so that no man should boast, but God. Enter in the only means by which anything dead is made alive. A comprehensive, complete work of God, who, by the way, is rich in mercy. Not rich in dollar bills, because that means little, but rich in mercy. He has great love. He has made us alive. Notice the contrast, the use of language, dead and alive. You could not get more opposite between the two. Dead, unable, alive, full of hope. Oh, brothers and sisters, this should be sweet music to your ears. If music doesn't do this for you, this is sweet food in your mouth. This is a sweet smell in your nostrils. Whatever works for you, this is glorious. And those among us who can't hear that music for the white noise of your sin, I pray the Lord will break through your hardness of hearing this morning. And it is he alone through his grace that can rip apart the white noise of sin to hear the sweet music of grace in Christ. I pray that you, all of us, would see, sense, and believe that God indeed has stepped into our dark plight. He has responded. On what grounds? His grace alone. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he do this? How can he do this to such undeserving people? Our situation is so bleak. We have no capacity to turn towards him. We are captive to our own desires and corrupt thinking. Both are present in this text. How then does God make you and I alive if all of us is dead spiritually? Why and on what grounds can he do this great work? Well, the thing you must hear this morning and the most freeing, glorious news you could hear, it is by grace you have been saved. If it was on your merit alone, we would be condemned. It is God's grace and it is nothing else. He stepped forward in grace and extended forgiveness towards us in Christ. As one scholar put it, sin is violent rebellion against God, and biblical grace is God's violent, raw, bloody response. Sounds kind of wild, but if we stop for a second and realize the drastic nature of God's grace and his response, praise the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God stepped in on the grounds of his grace alone. Not your worthiness, not your stuff, not how often you read your Bible, though you should, but on his grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone. You may be wondering, yeah, okay, pastor, you're preaching to the choir, we get this. Why is this so important? Why are we taking an entire month 
of January to remind ourselves of this essential truth. Well, historically, let me give you a picture. We've been referencing this thing called the Reformation to where these truths started to be unearthed and started to be put forward as what is actually true. So Luther and many others during the 16th century, they were drowning in trying to make themselves well. They were drowning in trying to make themselves alive. The cell of indulgences, as they were called, it was a way to lessen punishment of sin. It was a way to try to earn God's favor. And this mindset or this thinking was absolutely destroying the gospel, particularly destroying grace alone. And in doing so, putting heavy weight on people. How much should I buy? How much should I give? Did I give enough? The people were being pressed to earn their way towards God, to turn his favor towards them by some action of themselves. See, this now makes man the grounds for salvation, not God's grace. Salvation is built upon God's grace, not your actions. And anything else is a fool's errand. Salvation is outside of ourselves. And this became actually the most freeing thought for all of these reformers. Here's what Luther actually said. I had hoped I might find peace of conscience with fast, prayer, and the vigils with which I miserably afflicted my body. But the more I sweated it out like this, the less peace and tranquility I knew. This was the means by which people would be saved. This is the grounds by which God would save people in this time period. And the more they gave themselves to it, the less peace they had. You see, Luther was gripped with fear and many along with him by this great anxiety at his inability to stand before a holy God. He understood verses 1 to 3 very well of Ephesians. He knew it in his life, and you know it in yours. He was very aware of his inability to stand before a holy God. And you know what? This morning, you should be as well. That is, if it's based upon your own merit. That is frightening to me, and it should be frightening to you. You see, because it is from God, his gift, the text says, in order that no man boasts of their goodness, boast of their righteousness. No man or woman in their right mind can make their salvation about them and their effort. If they did, it would be seen as foolish from everyone listening to them. Everyone who has tasted and seen God's grace that appeared in Christ would hear that as complete foolishness. Anyone who calls himself a Christian should be able to sniff out quickly a boasting of salvation based upon man's efforts. This is what Paul is doing here. He's pulling out just how foolish a thought it is to think 
that salvation is based upon our own merit in the slightest. From beginning to end, it is a work of God. When you look at these verses, particularly the first three, you begin to feel the weight of our inabilities. But yet, God is gracious. But God intercede. God in his grace saves us. What a glorious truth and reality to remind ourselves so that we don't slip back into dependence on self. What is the purpose of all this grace? Well, I mean, to be saved and to rejoice and become a people who honor and glorify God. But, but look at verse 10 as we come to the end of this text. For we are his workmanship. I, even that term is just wonderful. To know that the Lord is working on me, carving and crafting and, and, and rubbing off the rough edges, taking sandpaper over my life, you know? We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The purpose of this grace and our salvation is pretty clear. All this so that we are enabled to go and work for him. What are these works that are a result of God's grace and our salvation in our life? Well, clearly we can see throughout the entirety of Scripture that these works are passionate, holy pursuits of God that find their way into our daily actions. Sometimes we overcomplicate it because God's grace in our life, it affects all of our actions, all of our life. We should be more pleasant as a result of God's grace in our life. We should be more directed and focused. We should be able to be selfless. We should be able to say no to unhealthy habits, to do the right thing according to God's holy word. You see, God's grace has an impact, changes us, it shapes us, it forms us. We become a holy people who live holy lives. Not only are we a holy people, but we become a working people who work as a joyous response to God's grace. Notice I said joyous. Christians should be the most joyous of people. Now I know we go through hard times and we get sad. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the Lord sees fit to use that to work in our lives. But we go about our lives and our task and our work and our honoring of God as a joyous response, not as a way to earn his favor. How miserable it must be to live a life of doing things so that God will like you. And actually, we have a very clear snapshot of what that looks like. Look at the Reformation. Look at the church early on in those years. We become a people who work. What do we work? We work acts of grace everywhere we find ourselves. We are his workmanship to go work grace, to live holy lives characterized by grace. You may be wondering, grace for today, where, where is that? 
Grace today from God is still so clearly seen in salvation. Can we be clear? Can I get an amen? His grace is so clear. We see it every day when someone professes faith and in repentance turns and hopes in Christ. Oh, that is glorious. When the baptismal gets full and people are baptized, declaring that truth, that is a sign of God's grace. It is still clear today in the salvation of souls. But let me remind us that grace from God is also found in his people. A church, not the walls, the people, is a place where God extends his mercy. If we are to experience God's grace, it is in and through brothers and sisters in this room, through the local gathering of believers. We were, according to this text, and still are, fitted for good works that will indeed be extinctions of God's grace towards others. So what does that mean? Being here. Just simply the act of being here for our Sunday gathering is essential in receiving God's grace and giving God's grace. It is here where we baptize and rejoice in salvation. It is here where we gather around the Lord's table to remind ourselves of Christ. It is here where a kind word is spoken. It is here where a brother or sister stops in the hallway and prays for you. It is here where God's word is unpacked so our hearts can sing with joy as we walk out of this room. God uses his people for some reason, as flawed as we are, to extend grace towards others. Think about even our corporate praise together. Isn't this a moment where God's grace is evident? Often I, as one of your pastors here, what a joy that is, that I get to sit back there and look and watch you go for it, for lack of a better term, but yet also knowing the pains and troubles of your life. Do you know what happens when I look at that? I get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because I'm watching you praise the Lord. Even our corporate gathering of praise together is a moment to see God's grace tangibly. To know that cancer riddles some of your bodies. To know that chronic illness plagues you. To know that there's unsettledness in families, but yet here you are, hands lifted high, saying this truth is true. We taste and see God's goodness. Even that Psalms is in the, in the context of corporate worship. And verse 8 just blurts out, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? Because he's looking over the congregation. This is a means of grace. Means of grace can be defined, any activity 
with the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. That's what we're talking about. We talked about salvific grace, right? Grace that he saves us. And then there's ongoing help. God loves us so much that he continues to extend his grace towards us. And it happens most tangibly in the local gathering. In a day where church is more of an add-on option, we literally cannot neglect the gathering For it's the place where God's grace is seen, proclaimed, and felt. You neglect church, you miss the many means of grace that exist here. God is not a one-stop grace giver. It's not a plop a quarter in, pull it down, one-time grace, and I'm saved. He is rich in mercy, brothers and sisters, and he continues to pour out his grace. The fact that we're gathered in this moment together is a sign of God's grace. Where is grace for us today? Well, grace for us today is a constant awareness that Light in the Desert Church only exists because of God's grace. Not our goodness. (laughs) We have a sordid past. It is not because of our goodness, but precisely because of God's grace. It is wise for us, even as a congregation, to always be telling ourselves that. Moms, dad, it is wise for you to sit with your families and always be telling your families that we exist, family, by God's grace. We are so grateful. One of the more memorable times I've had was just the other day when I was describing how we were recounting God's grace in our life as a family. Some, yes, we can point to tangible things of of health and this and that, and other things we can point to hard times as a family, and God sustained us. A sign of God's grace. Are you marking those moments in your family? You should. To declare the goodness of God. To point to his grace. And if you don't have anywhere, salvation, just remind you, you can always look back to that as a deep and radical, glorious sign of God's grace in your life. Lastly, might I propose this as how do we see or sense God's grace today is to develop a real sense of sin. Sounds counterintuitive, but you know grace is only sweet when sin is bitter. You see, grace is so wonderful here in verse 4 because of the first three verses. Dead, unable, (laughs) following after the world and all the passions. But God, and the sweet taste of grace comes. You see, you and I, and and J.C. Ryle used to say, uh, we need to become aware of just how sinful sin is. We, We need God in 2023 to remind us just how bitter sin is. Because God's grace will become all the more sweeter as we see that. Perhaps it's time for us to take hard looks at our lives. Perhaps it's time for us to get with others and read our Bibles and pour our hearts to have a real sense of just how sinful sin is. It is in these things that we can see, we can taste, experience, and feel God's grace. From His grace to save sinners, to his grace to sustain believers.
It's all grace. From grace to save sinners to his grace to sustain believers. Are you aware? Do you reflect? Do you stop and rejoice in God's grace to you? This morning, let it be clear, sinners are made alive by grace alone. And those sinners that are made alive by grace alone are sustained by grace alone. And as God sustains us, we become a people of grace. You remember Romans 3? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by what? His Even the old Roman road reminds you and I. Romans proved to actually be the place where this truth, God's grace alone, freed that hurting monk. Freed a whole group of followers of Christ. It was in Romans and in that text where justified by grace became the key that just unlocked and freed hurting souls, knowing very well verses 1 to 3. But then verse 4, but God. You see, it was Romans that proved to be the place that 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 belief was so clear, that trying to earn God's favor was a fool's errand and crushing. Trying to make God like them, to like a wretched sinner, was a miserable task. But when it became clear that they were justified by grace alone, the grounds of salvation is in God and his grace. It became clear that salvation was outside of their selves. And it's clear to us again this morning that salvation is outside of us. It's grounded in the grace of God. And it's given to you based upon no merit of yours, but his splendid grace. And the grace that saves sinners is the grace that sustains believers. Let us be a joyous people as we rejoice that we have been saved alone. And let us rejoice that it's the same grace that sustains. And let us be a people of grace. If you're with us this morning and don't know that grace, oh, grab someone. It is sweet indeed. Let's pray. Father God, this morning when we think through this glorious truth, Lord, it's hard to just fully comprehend all that is wrapped up in uh, those just few little words by grace alone. But Father, we come as your people wanting to grab a hold of that more, wanting to feel the weight of your grace and our salvation, but to see the grace that continues to sustain us. Father, may we be a people just like the psalmist who are quick to point out your mighty words, quick to point out your grace and mercy in our lives and to grow dependent upon it, to grow a, uh, to be a people identified by your grace. Father, because the grace that saves sinners is the grace that sustains believers and we come this morning never declaring that our salvation is based upon our work, but yours alone. Father, may this year be full 
of tangible ways that we can see your grace. May this year be full of rejoicing in your kindness towards us. So, Father, it is in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. As we finish up, let me remind you of just a couple of things. We're taking up our offering in the foyer as you go out. The offering plate is on the right. That's also a great place to leave your visitor's cards or your prayer requests there in the offering plate. And then one announcement, and that is the Wednesday night studies on uh, disciple makers will not start until February. So Pastor Brian will keep us updated on when that's going to start and what the topics will be. Let's all stand and we'll be dismissed with these words from 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.